0: Breaking news, a terrorist attack in Tel Aviv, and all of the victims are tourists. The lead starts right now. Tensions continue to escalate in the Middle East. New details and images just coming in as CNN learns of a new terrorist attack in Tel Aviv as Israel strikes after a barrage of rockets hit along its borders. Plus, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas tries to explain after a bombshell report revealed his Many family trips on a yacht and a private jet, all paid for by a billionaire Republican mega-donor, and Thomas never disclosed almost any of it. Plus, Vice President Kamala Harris dispatched to Tennessee one day after State House Republicans expelled two Democrats, two black men who were protesting on the floor, but they did not expel the other Democrat on the floor with them, a white woman. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We have some breaking, tragic news from Israel. You're looking at live pictures from Tel Aviv after one person was killed and six wounded from a, quote, terror attack in a popular thoroughfare in the city. Israel says all of the victims, the one dead and the six wounded, were tourists, as fears of further escalation mount going into the weekend with Passover, Ramadan and Easter all converging. This has all been set off, this recent round of violence, by a barrage between Israelis and Palestinians. It started uh, with back-to-back Israeli police raids on a mosque in Jerusalem on Wednesday because of protests in the mosque. That then triggered rocket fire from Lebanon into Israel on Thursday. Then came retaliatory strikes by Israel's military into Gaza and Lebanon overnight. And now Israeli officials say in a separate attack... Two British-Israeli citizens were shot and killed by Palestinian terrorists on the West Bank today. Those British-Israeli citizens have been identified as 16- and 20-year-old sisters. Now, the Palestinian group Hamas, which the U.S. State Department deems a terrorist organization, welcomed the brutal attack on the 16- and 20-year-old sisters. They described it as a, quote, heroic operation. Israel's defense forces spokesperson tells CNN that the goal right now in the region is de-escalation, but the spokesman admits, quote, we are in very volatile times. We're going to cover this from Jerusalem and from the Israel-Lebanon border. Let's start with CNN's Hadass Gold, who is near the Israel-Lebanon border. Hadass, what new are we learning about this uh, attack in Tel Aviv?
1: Jake, this took place, this attack took place during at a very popular tourist area during what is a very popular tourist time because of all these holidays, tens of thousands of extra tourists were expected to be in Israel visiting. What we understand is a car that was driving along the main road that goes right alongside parallel to the beach in Tel Aviv somehow managed to go over some barricades that are there and drive onto the promenade where people walk enjoying themselves along the beach. The, The car managed to hit some pedestrians. And then also, we do, under, we do believe that the suspect got out of his car and also managed to somehow shoot at the same time. It's not clear if that happened after the car was overturned or beforehand. We know that at least one man who is said to be 30 years old was killed. And something like at least five others were injured. One of them, a 17-year-old girl all of the victims are tourists, is what Israeli authorities are saying. We do not know where these tourists are from. All we know from Israeli authorities is that they are all tourists. Now, we also know from Israeli police that the suspect was shot and killed by nearby police officers who happened to be at a gas station that is right there. I can't overemphasize how much of a popular place this is. It's a Friday night. People are out and about walking alongside the beach. This is a very popular area, not only for Israelis, but also for tourists. It's right by some of the major tourists spots in Tel Aviv uh, now Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is calling on extra border police reinforcements as well as Israeli soldier reinforcements to come out the Israeli police have also officially called on any and all citizens who are licensed to carry a firearm to keep it on them at all times and respond to any sort of situation that they see like this this is now the third person to die in uh, in such terror attacks in one day the other two of course being the sisters that you mentioned this that that attack happened in the occupied West Bank? Their mother, who was with them in the car, was also actually shot and critically injured in that attack that, as you noted, Hamas and also the Palestinian Islam- Islamic Jihad have praised. So the Israeli authorities now essentially putting all of the security established on as full of an alert as it can be. Also, where this took place, Jake, uh, this attack in Tel Aviv, not very far from if you remember that American who was killed in a stabbing terror attack a few years ago in Jaffa, Taylor Force, that happened also not far from where this attack has happened. This attack took place. We're still trying to find new details about the suspect. All we know so far is that the suspect who was driving this car was later shot and killed on the scene by Israeli police. All right.
0: Hadass Gold near the Israel Lebanon border. Thank you so much. Let's go now to CNN. Salma Abdelaziz in Jerusalem. And Salma, um, bring us the, the wider context here. This attack in Tel Aviv happens amidst a, a lot of violence in the region.
2: Absolutely. Prime Minister Netanyahu's call for extra border police, that is not in isolation. That is not just in response to this incident, regardless of how serious it is. There has been a serious uptick, a serious escalation in violence in the region, one unseen in years. And that really bears the hallmarks of potentially a wider conflict. I knew you played those pictures earlier of the catalyst, really, the moment that launched uh, this wider escalation, beginning with that raid. Uh, the Israeli police raid on Al-Aqsa Mosque on Wednesday. Israeli police saying that they entered the mosque after rioters barricaded themselves inside. But for the wider Muslim community, that was seen as a provocation. A pouring of condemnation came in, and so did rockets from two different locations, they, Jake. Southern, uh, southern Lebanon, a barrage of rockets coming From there, the largest scene since the conflict in 2006, more than 30 rockets, as well as a barrage of rockets coming from Gaza. There were retaliatory strikes by the Israeli Israeli military. And it appeared that this was a very measured tit-for-tat, if you will. But the last 24 hours, really a very serious uptick, as you heard from my colleague Hadass there. This is the second uh, terror attack, Israeli police say, occurring today, the first uh, on the West Bank. There's two sisters killed in a shooting attack. And now in Tel Aviv, again, a place considered relatively safe and all of this coinciding with three different religious holidays coming at one period in time the muslim month of ho- uh, the the holy muslim month of ramadan is underway passover is underway easter is taking place as well so serious concerns now especially with these latest statements from prime minister netanyahu with the increased rocket attacks that this just becomes further and further uh, this escalation just grows further and further jake
0: and the, the six uh, terrorists, uh, I mean, uh, six uh, tourists killed by the terrorists in Tel Aviv. I mean, they, they could be from anywhere celebrating any holiday, Ramadan, Easter or Passover. Uh, quite awful. Uh, Salma Abdelaziz in Jerusalem, thank you so much. Now to the Pentagon, where officials are alarmed. What appear to be screenshots of classified U.S. and NATO intelligence documents about the war in Ukraine are circulating online. The slides, some of which are labeled secret and top secret, appear to detail Key information about Ukraine's military, information that would ultimately surely be useful to Russia as Ukraine prepares for its spring counteroffensive. There are different versions of these documents, some of which appear to have been doctored. CNN's Natasha Bertrand is at the Pentagon for us. And, Natasha, do U.S. officials know who may have doctored uh, these slides?
3: Well, Jake, the short answer is no, and the Pentagon is telling us that they have seen the reports of these, these images circulating on social media and they are reviewing the matter. But look, officials are telling us that they do believe that largely these images are authentic, with a pretty big caveat, as you mentioned, that some of them do appear to have been doctored. Now, just to take a step back for a moment, these are images that appear to be photographs of documents that show classified information that has been compiled by the U.S. and NATO uh, about Ukraine's military capabilities as well well as training and equipment plans for the Ukrainians ahead of their spring counteroffensive. Now, we have a tweet up on the screen here that shows a Wall Street Journal reporter kind of outlining the discrepancies, as I mentioned, in in these documents, showing that some of them may have been doctored. An original document uh, uh, that appears to have been circulating online showed an accurate Pentagon assessment, we are told, of roughly 35 to 45,000 Russians that have been killed in action since the beginning of the war. However, that appears to have been doctored later on. We don't know yet by whom. However, you know, you have to consider who would you know be, uh, have the advantage in, in doctoring this to show the Russian casualty numbers as a lot lower. Now, the Pentagon is investigating whether there are additional documents circulating online that they are not aware of, and of course, how these documents got there in the first place. And we should note that the Ukrainians don't necessarily believe that these are particularly damaging. At least that is the statement and the, the image that they are portraying to us. A senior Ukrainian official in the president's office said that he actually believes that this is Russian disinformation and that these do not reveal sensitive military operations. But, you know, the Pentagon obviously very concerned about this. And they are saying that they are continuing to look into it, Jake. But clearly a, a highly concerning leak, uh, it appears to be, of sensitive and classified information. Jake.
0: All right. Natasha, we're at the Pentagon for us. Thank you. You so much right now, Vice President Kamala Harris is making a quickly scheduled trip to Tennessee. The demand she is expected to make as she meets with the two Democrats just expelled from office by the Republican-led majority in the legislature there, and he's avoided execution three times. What could stop the clock on the fourth time for Richard Glossop, the death row inmate facing execution in Oklahoma next month? Plus, the statement today from Justice Clarence Thomas as he tries to explain why he never disclosed. Hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of fancy family trips paid for by a billionaire Republican mega-donor. Stay with us. Turning to our politics lead now, a rare statement about his private life from Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, responding to a bombshell report in ProPublica that he and his wife have gone on numerous luxury vacations with and paid for by GOP mega donor and conservative businessman Harlan Crow, without the Supreme Court Justice disclosing the trips as seems to be required. CNN's and Ariane DeVogue is digging into this all for us. Ariane what what is Justice Thomas saying about why he didn't disclose these trips.
4: First of all, it's so rare to get a statement from Thomas in the first place. He clearly needed, knew he needed to explain things. And he basically says, look, the reason he didn't disclose it, he was told that he didn't have to disclose it. In the statement, he says that he and his wife, Ginny, well-known conservative... Uh, activist there, were um, longtime friends with Crow, and this is what he said. He said, early in my tenure at the court, I sought guidance from my colleagues and others in the judiciary and was advised that this sort of personal hospitality from close personal friends who do not have business before the court was not reportable. I have endeavored to follow that counsel Throughout my tenure, and have always sought to comply with the disclosure guidelines. Note there that he stresses that Crow didn't have business before uh, the court. But uh, he also notes now that the rules have changed, as in last month. And now going forward, he says he's going to disclose.
0: He disclosed some gifts from Crow back in 2004, and then the LA Times wrote some nasty stuff about him, and then he stopped. So I don't know how much that holds water. But in any case, you've gotten some reaction from federal judges uh, to the report. What are they telling
5: you? Right.
4: And it has. They don't usually speak up, even though they didn't use their names. But I talked to one group. Really, they were livid about this. They said uh, one of the judges said this is precisely why the public respect for the Supreme Court has plummeted. This is far greater than mere ethics violations. It's about the perceived legitimacy of the Supreme Court. But I did talk to other judges who actually sided with him. They're like, these rules then were vague, and he was following the rules. And I pressed, and I said, yeah, but here we're talking about luxury trips, right? Private jets, yachts, not like the fancy car on Uber or something, really important ones. And he said, look, they were the rules. He followed the rules. But it's opened up a firestorm, and maybe now a lot of judges are wondering with this fresh look at – Uh, at their ethics disclosures if that's going to start a whole new story. The
0: court still does not have an official code of conduct, though, right?
4: And that is really, that's the next big story. Chief
0: Justice Earl Warren, 54 years ago, wanted them to do it after the whole Abe Fortas debacle. Ariane DeVoe, always great to see you. Thanks so much. Next to Nashville and what happens next after Tennessee, Republicans kick two Democrats out of office because they protested on the state house floor. Stay with us. In our national lead, the noise from Music City uh, seems to be growing louder, enough to spur a last-minute visit from Vice President Kamala Harris today. She will meet with the two Democratic state lawmakers just expelled from the General Assembly there. The move was in retaliation for their state house floor protest in favor of gun reform after Nashville's deadly school shooting. The protest was no doubt unruly, but people are asking whether or not they deserve to be expelled from office for it. CNN's Gary Tuchman now takes a look at what could come next as tens of thousands of Tennesseans have now been stripped of representation in the state house.
6: New energy at the Tennessee state capitol after a day of protests, debate, and consequential votes.
7: Mr. Speaker, i move the House, stand in recess until 5 p.m. on Monday,
8: April 10th, 2023.
6: Two Democratic legislators had just been expelled from the Tennessee House of Representatives by a Republican supermajority. In the hallways of the state capitol in Nashville, demonstrators yelling and crying, with some staging and dying in protest. As legislators filed out of the House chambers a chaotic scene, Tennessee state troopers standing between them and demonstrators. The yelling was loud, but all stayed peaceful. And then out came the representatives who had been the subject of the expulsion discussions. Justin Pearson on the left, Gloria Johnson in the middle, Justin Jones on the right. The two men expelled, the woman surviving by one vote. They were punished by Republicans for their demonstration on the House floor last week, calling for gun reform, walking up to the well of the chamber, and protesting following the horrific school shooting in Nashville last month. (laughs) Republicans saying their behavior was disorderly, and as a result, they made the decision to kick the two men out of the legislature. So what does the woman who survived have to say about that?
9: I think it's pretty clear I'm a 60-year-old white woman, and they are two young black men.
6: The chairman of the Tennessee Black Caucus is Sam McKenzie. The world saw the optics. I don't have to say a word
10: about the fact that our two young African-American brothers were unfairly prosecuted, Information, evidence introduced inappropriately, but they handled themselves like true
6: champions. Republicans deny a racism allegation, some saying that Gloria Johnson was not leading the protest effort last week. One Republican leader told us further investigation, taking it to the Ethics Committee, a lesser punishment, was not something his party wanted to do. This group, my caucus, which is the supermajority, there are 75 of us, said, no, that is not, we don't want to go the ethics route. We don't want them censured. We want them expelled. But one of those expelled representatives stands by what he and his two Democratic colleagues did, saying they were not being allowed to talk about what they feel needed to be talked about, gun reform.
11: We have been expelled for standing with our constituents, but I have no regrets. and will continue to speak up for District 52 and for Tennesseans who are demanding change.
6: Notably, both expelled legislators could be back in office, and soon their county commissions will appoint temporary representatives prior to the next election, and they are permitted to select the two men who were expelled Vice President Harris is flying here right now she will meet later this afternoon to discuss gun control with the two legislators who were expelled but also she's invited every democratic legislator here in the state capital of Nashville to participate in the meeting she will fly back Jake to Washington tonight President Biden yesterday said the expulsion is shocking and undemocratic This Monday, hundreds of people are expected right where I'm standing for a protest, along with the two lawmakers who've lost their lawmaking jobs.
0: Jake. All right. uh, Gary Tuckman in Nashville. Thanks so much. With us now, Quante Toombs. She's a member of the 40-member Nashville Metro Council. uh, Councilwoman Toombs, thanks for joining us. So you're one of the council members who's going to vote to fill the seat on an interim basis of expelled former state lawmaker, Justin Jones. Are you going to vote for Jones to fill the seat? And do you think that vote will happen on Monday?
12: So I'll absolutely be voting to restore Representative Jones to his seat in District 52. The constituents of District 52 voted him in. I've heard no calls from anyone in District 52 that he shouldn't have that seat. Uh, In fact, we've received, uh, council members have received several, uh, probably hundreds, if not thousands of emails already, tweets and and other communication from constituents asking that he be restored to his seat. Uh, On Monday, I am uh, very hopeful that we will vote on Monday uh, to restore Representative Jones to his seat. It will take a suspension of the rules because that's not our normal procedure in these types of circumstances, but I'm very hopeful Uh, that my colleagues will vote to suspend the rules so that we can immediately
0: uh, reappoint him to this seat. Why do you think the legislature voted to expel Jones as well as Representative Justin Pearson, but not State Representative Gloria Johnson, who was alongside them in those protests? State Representative Johnson says it's because this, this is her view, she's a white woman and therefore she the, she's still in the state legislature and the other two gentlemen are, are young black men. Do, is that how you see it?
12: I think the optics are, are clear, uh, regardless of what the intent was of the, the representatives who voted no on Representative uh, Johnson and not on Representative Jones and Pearson. uh, When you see the two young African-American males expelled and the older white woman not expelled, I mean, you can't get past the racial undertones of that. Even in 2023, uh, given the history of this country and the history of this state, you can't get past the optics and uh, perception is reality. Uh, So even though those were the optics that there were racial undertones, representatives still went forward with their vote.
0: What are you hearing uh, from residents of Nashville, from Justin Jones constituents, about what has happened in the last week?
12: People are disheartened. They feel like they've been disenfranchised. The the voices of an entire district uh, were essentially silenced and their vote nullified. Uh, They are pleading with the council to reinstate Representative Jones uh, immediately. I've heard no single person saying that he should have been expelled. Everyone feels like that was uh, unjust uh, and undemocratic. Uh, I mean, it's in no uncertain terms, it's very clear that our constituents want us to restore him to the seat.
0: He's been an activist for quite some time. uh, And I'm wondering if you think some of this was just Republicans trying to get rid of an activist, somebody who has been involved in protests. He was involved in, I believe he was involved in the movement to try to get rid of the bust of uh, the former uh, leader of the Klan, uh, uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest, I believe is his name. Do you think that this is, that's part of it? People just not liking his activism for years and years and seeing a chance to, to punish him?
12: I think there is some uh, distaste for his activism. Uh, Representative Jones, as well as uh, Representative Pearson, they have the ability to move a, a lot of people, to inspire a lot of people, particularly young people, to action. And when you see young people being inspired to action, it's a threat to the old way of doing politics. Uh, and so that makes a lot of people who want to hold on to that old way of doing politics makes them very uncomfortable. So yes, I, I do think that it was a way to to try to get rid of that activism, but it's only temporary. As you can see, young people have been even more inspired to action, and it's just going to catapult uh, Representative Jones, Representative Pearson, even more.
0: All right, Councilwoman Quante Toombs, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. Here now to discuss Audie Cornish, CNN correspondent, host of the assignment with Audie Cornish, and former reporter covering Tennessee politics extensively as the former NPR bureau chief uh, in Nashville. That must have been a fun assignment, but it also was. you can see why. Yeah, uh, but also, I mean, was this what the state house was like when you were there? Was it was it this fractured and and this little willingness to see people as as fellow humans. Right. I
9: mean, keep in mind, there's always been a kind of politeness to Tennessee politics. People think of it originally as the state of kind of Howard Baker and Bill Frist and Al Gore, these sort of, it was a little more of a genteel vibe. Um, Since then, you know, the most prominent person there would would be Marsha Blackburn, the senator, to give you a sense of sort of how the politics um, have moved. You know, it's interesting, the battle, though, between Nashville or Memphis, the kind of urban, big population centers, versus the state and the more rural exurban, suburban, more Republican-led parts of the state that has only grown since Obama was elected and the state house flipped to Republican control.
0: Right, and it's not just a flip, right? Because of gerrymandering, um, Tennessee is a Republican state, uh, but it's not a seventy-five percent to twenty-five percent Republican state, which is what the legislator legislature looks like. Um, So that's that's part of it. How much do you see what's going on in Tennessee as kind of, I don't know, just a proxy fight to how bitter our politics have gotten in general?
9: I think it's more a proxy fight to for these longer ongoing trends. There are so many states that are held by uh, Republican legislatures. Right. And so many cities that have a Democrat led City Hall. And you're constantly seeing this friction of people trying to legislate on the city level versus uh, maybe having those uh, rules superimposed or, over, or vetoed at the state level. Um, and that happens here in Washington, D.C., right, Rid large with Congress. What's interesting about this moment to me is watching kind of Gen Z enter the chat, so to speak, <laughs> this generation of lawmakers, we have 126, 127. If you think about it, if you're 27 now, you've witnessed Occupy Wall Street, uh, Trayvon Martin, the entire Black Lives Matter movement grow. Um, and you can even consider the same-sex marriage battles, Roe v. Wade. You're witnessing a more confrontational, progressive politics that is not so focused on compromise, which I would say, you know, you or I growing up in the 90s and with Bill Clinton, etc., compromise was the name of the game. That's not the game they play. And you can see that very literally in this conflict in Tennessee.
0: So the Tennessee Republican caucus chair, uh, Jeremy Fison uh, spoke to CNN last night before he abruptly exited the interview. He said this about the three democratic state lawmakers. It's not possible for us
6: to move forward with the way they were behaving in committee and on the house floor. There's got to be some peace.
0: We should point out, um, not entirely relevant, but he uh, was escorted outside, uh, escorted out of uh, his son's basketball game for trying to pants a referee, uh, that exemplar of uh, Southern behavior. But he, he claims that these three lawmakers, two of whom were removed, the third, the white woman, was not, that their actions made it impossible for the legislature to function. Uh, do you buy the idea that expulsion, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't deny that they were unruly and disruptive, But do you buy that expulsion was the only solution to this?
9: Two things are true at once. Being being unruly and stopping the business of the legislature was the point. That's why you have a protest. At the same time, we also heard them say, we have the supermajority, right? Effectively, it's our house. We chose not to censure. We chose not to send a committee. We, as the supermajority Republicans, decided we had had enough, So I think kind of the answer is right there. They could have chosen to do something else. They chose to do this. And what's interesting is what they have awakened um, in the state as a result. You know, I'm going to be interested in seeing what does this mean for the very, you know, there is a strong progressive and democratic populist tradition in Nashville that exists in Tennessee and in the South that exists. Um, Will we see that uh, kind of rise up in a way? Um, will we see more young people? You know, fundamentally, we have some young lawmakers who were inspired by John Lewis. They consider him an icon, the late John Lewis. He sat down on the House floor in Congress after the Pulse Nightclub shooting. They were disruptive. So if he could do it, I'm sure for them, generationally, they're thinking, well, it's our
0: turn. I do wonder what Taylor Swift is going to say about all this.
9: Maybe she will say something. I mean, country music stars aren't known for jumping into the no, breach, no, but jumped into this the, might be the moment. The
0: Senate race at one yeah. point. Audie Corners, thanks so much. Good to thanks see for for you, me. Coming up next, a death row inmate close to execution for a fourth time. Today, CNN spoke with his attorney. The efforts happening this time around to spare Richard Glossop's life. Plus, new information just coming in about the breaking news a terrorist attack in Tel Aviv. Uh, one tourist killed, five tourists wounded. We're back in a moment. Details just in on that deadly terrorist attack in Tel Aviv. Hospital officials say three British tourists and one Italian tourist were among those injured in the attack in a popular thoroughfare. Israel reports one person was killed, a 30-year-old man pronounced dead at the scene. Seven others were injured. Three of those had moderate injuries, with four described as having light injuries. All of the victims, Israeli officials say, all of them were tourists. We'll have more updates on this developing situation as those developments come in as the information comes in. In our national lead now, the clock is ticking as Oklahoma's attorney general takes steps that may stop next month's scheduled execution of a man who's been on death road for decades and whose conviction may be the result of another man's lie. We've told you Richard Glossop's story before. CNN's Ed Lavendera has all the latest.
13: In almost 25 years on death row, Richard Glossop has stared down an execution date nine times. He's been served his last meal three times before getting last-minute reprieves. But Oklahoma's attorney general now says he can no longer stand behind Glossop's murder conviction and is asking the state's Court of Criminal Appeals to give Glossop a new trial. And how did Richard Glossop react? I'll never forget that look. Uh, you know, of realization that, hey,
10: you know, finally somebody in the state is listening and, um, uh, you know, now he has
13: a chance. Glossop was sentenced to death for the 1997 murder of his boss, Barry Van Trees. They worked at a motel in Oklahoma City, but it was another employee, Justin Sneed, who admitted to killing Van Trees. Sneed, who is serving a life sentence, was spared the death penalty in exchange for testifying that Glossop offered to pay him for the killing. The Oklahoma Attorney General says Sneed is a compromised witness, though. An independent investigation found that prosecutors destroyed and withheld evidence from Glossop's defense attorneys. There's also evidence that Sneed regretted his testimony. In letters, he writes, "...do I have the choice of recanting my testimony?" And there are a lot of things right now that are eating at me, some things I need to clean up. Well,
6: you can have this hope. It's like having a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, finally.
13: Earlier this year, Richard Glossop spoke with CNN from death row about the psychological toll of fighting to get state officials to hear his pleas of innocence. Knowing
6: that you're going to die just eats at you and eats at you and eats at you. I tried to do everything in my power to avoid that from happening. I've been through this so many times that it's still
13: scary. It will always be scary until they finally open this door and let me go. Oklahoma's attorney general and the independent counsel he appointed both say calls to give Glossop a new trial doesn't mean they believe he's innocent, but that there must be absolute faith that the death penalty is administered fairly and with certainty right now with this news, this is probably the greatest sense of relief he's he's experienced in, in years.
10: We have hope. We have real hope for the first time in a long time. And, and Rich certainly feels an incredible sense of, of, of uh, uh, hope for the future, um, anxiety over what might come next.
13: And it's not exactly clear when the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals will determine Richard Glossop's fate. Uh, As of now, Jake, his execution is still scheduled for May 18th. So as you said, the clock is still ticking. Jake.
0: All right, Ed Lavandera, thanks so much. Maybe don't be so quick to ignore those calls from unknown numbers. The important message someone may be trying to tell you about health benefits that you might be at risk of losing. Stay tuned. In our money lead now, the first jobs report in 12 months that actually came in below expectations today. Just 236,000 jobs added in March, an indication that the labor market might be cooling off and perhaps a sign those high prices hitting your wallet will start to come down. CNN's Rahel Solomon is here. Rahel, does this mean all those rate hikes by the Federal Reserve are, are achieving what they want them to?
14: Well, Jake, it definitely seems like the medicine is starting to work, at least on the labor side of things. So 236, which was just slightly cooler than economists were expecting. I can show you and put that in context over the last year. You can see certainly lighter than we've seen over the last year or so by historical standards. However, still strong. Right. What we like to see also encouraging here, Jake, we saw almost half a million people come off the sidelines and actually join the workforce, right? Labor force participation, that increased slightly. Uh, So that has to be good news to the Fed, getting some help on the supply side of things. The unemployment rate, which you are looking at here, that declined as well, slightly to 3.5%. That is very low. Also very low, making news today, the unemployment rate for black Americans also falling to a record low, higher than the national average, but falling to 5%. Jake, that is the lowest level since the BLS started tracking this data in 1972. And take a look at that. The unemployment rate for black women also falling to 4.2%. That is also a record low. So bottom line here, is this a cooling? Yes. Is this a gradual cooling? Yes. Is it welcome news for the Fed? I would argue yes.
0: All right, Rael Solomon, thanks for breaking it down like this. Have a great weekend. And our health lead now, 15 million Americans who rely on Medicaid coverage are at risk of losing it. Fifteen million. An enrollment provision extended for the pandemic has expired. And now states have the power to drop those deemed ineligible for the health insurance program Medicaid. Some states are moving faster than others. And as CNN's Amara Walker reports for us now, that could lead to some accidents.
5: I'm doing wonderful, thank you. Courtney McKnight makes dozens of calls every day.
15: I wanted to know if you were familiar with the unwinding period that is happening here in Georgia.
5: A certified enrollment specialist with the Georgia Primary Care Association, she's been getting surprised reactions as she warns Georgia Medicaid recipients that they're at risk of losing their coverage.
12: So my my family, because I have Medicaid for my kids,
15: and I could lose Medicaid for my kids? Is Mm -hmm. that what you're saying? Yes, ma'am. Everyone has been pretty receptive, and I think it was just everyone was freaking out because the way the information is given, it's like, you're going to lose your benefits. And it's like, no, that you have not lost them. You're not going to lose them
5: if if you enroll within your 30 days. According to government estimates, 15 million people will soon lose their Medicaid coverage after pandemic-era protections expired last month. And what that means is states will now begin disenrolling people, begin the process of renewing coverage for everyone enrolled in the Medicaid program. States will have about a year to re-verify the eligibility of all 92 million enrollees of Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program, or CHIP, a free or low-cost health insurance for low-income people. McKnight says she's concerned that some will learn they've lost coverage when they're seeking medical care.
15: If I come in and Timmy has broken his leg and I can't pay for that because I didn't find out about this unwinding period until it was too late
5: there will be many people who will be disenrolled despite remaining eligible simply because they are unable to complete the renewal process. For the past three years, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act allowed Medicaid recipients to automatically have continuous coverage during the COVID federal public health emergency, even if they no longer qualified. During the pandemic, Medicaid enrollment grew by more than 21 million, according to KFF. It's a monumental task for many states dealing with staffing shortages and high turnover rates, which experts say raise the risk of procedural mistakes.
9: So they don't lose coverage because they're no longer eligible. They lose coverage because some sort of mistake has happened along the way, whether that be on the part of the family or on the part of the state agency worker, both working hard. You know, this will disproportionately impact um, children in the Latinx community here in
5: Georgia and black children. The easiest way to avoid losing coverage for those still eligible? They should be on the lookout for those notices, and when the notices come, open them right away and take whatever action is needed to to make sure they maintain coverage.
15: Update your information, update your phone numbers, update your home address, update
5: everything. Though her days may be long and the work quite tedious, It's a lot of pressure. McKnight plans to help as many Georgians as she can. Our biggest community
15: right now, biggest two communities that are being hit right now are the Asian and African American communities.
5: So if you don't want to lose your Medicaid coverage, the most urgent thing to do right now is to go to your state's online Medicaid portal and update all of your information and press that renew button. Five states have already begun removing people from their Medicaid rolls. That includes Arizona, Arkansas, Idaho, New Hampshire, and South Dakota. And about 15 more states will will follow in May. Jake?
0: All right, Admiral Walker, thanks so much. Appreciate it. We're going to go back live to Tel Aviv and the scene of that deadly terrorist attack at the top of the hour. Plus, the U.S. State Department releasing its own review of the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. Why this one is not sparking the same blistering questions that followed a Pentagon report released just a day earlier. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, she's five months pregnant with her seventh child, but now she does not know where she will give birth because the closest hospital with a maternity ward just closed down. She'll she'll have to drive 40 miles away. And she's far from the only mother to be stuck in what people are calling a maternity desert. Plus, a, four, a former NCAA swimmer claims she was attacked by protesters having, after giving a speech at a California university. The topic of her speech, trans women in women's sports. And new developments leading this hour. One tourist is dead and at least seven other people are wounded after a terrorist attack in Tel Aviv. We know three British tourists and one Italian tourist are among the injured. Israeli police say a car hit several people walking along a promenade. The Israeli foreign ministry is calling this a terrorist attack. This comes with tensions ratcheting up going into the weekend with Passover, Ramadan, and Easter all converging. The violence started with back-to-back Israeli police raids on a mosque in Jerusalem on Wednesday. That triggered rocket fire from Lebanon into Israel on Thursday, and then retaliatory strikes by Israel's military into Gaza and Lebanon overnight. This followed by Israeli officials saying that two British Israeli citizens were shot and killed... By Palestinian terrorists on the West Bank earlier today, a 16 and a 20-year-old, 16 and 20-year-old sisters. CNN's Fred Plykin just arrived at the scene of the latest attack in Tel Aviv. Fred, what more are you learning about this terrorist attack?
16: Hi there, J.K. You're absolutely right. We are at the scene. I'm getting out of. Get out of your way immediately because you can see that there are the first responders still out there who, right now, we believe, are taking away the body of the one victim who was killed in this uh, ramming attack that took place uh, earlier this evening here. and, And you're absolutely right, it's right on the promenade here in Tel Aviv. And there's some. Social media video out there of that car that you see there as well that's now laying there uh, overturned just racing down that promenade at some point getting off course and then flipping over several times before just coming down on its roof. The latest that we have uh, from the authorities here is that there are seven people who were uh, injured in this, four of them being tourists, three, as you mentioned, uh, come from the United Kingdom and one is uh, from Italy. Um, Some of them are moderately injured and some of them lightly injured. Some actually tried to flee to a, a hotel in the area to seek help, but as you can see, This is a wide cordon here now in the center of Tel Aviv. There's a lot of ambulances, obviously a lot of police cars here, as investigators are obviously still working uh, the scene here uh, as well, and probably will be for a long time to come. Right now, this is still extremely fresh. Uh, So far, it's unclear who exactly is behind uh, all of this, but certainly, obviously, a devastating event. And as you were mentioning, Jake, obviously, it comes on a day Uh, of so much violence uh, here uh, in Israel, where you also had that other attack that you were speaking about as well with those two women uh, who were killed when apparently their car was shot at uh, and then crashed to the driver of that car, who was the mother of the two uh, women uh, 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 who were killed also severely wounded and severely injured in that incident uh, uh, as well. So as you can see, a dramatic day here uh, uh, coming to a close. And and a lot of people, as you can imagine here on the scene, standing around me, who are absolutely shocked by some of the things that they witnessed here tonight, Jake.
0: All right, Fred Pleikin in Tel Aviv, Israel, thanks so much. A newly released review by the U.S. State Department claims that the Biden administration bungled several aspects of the American withdrawal from Afghanistan in August 2021. CNN national security correspondent Kylie Abbott is live for us from the State Department. And Kylie, unlike the White House report released yesterday, this separate State Department review identifies several clear missteps from the Biden administration that contributed to the chaotic and deadly withdrawal. Tell us more.
8: Yeah, that's right. So according to our sources, Jake, this State Department after action report has far more findings and recommendations in it than the document that was put out yesterday from the White House. And according to our sources who have either uh, seen this report or have been described the report, they say that there are 34 recommendations in total and they're very specific. They talk about uh, doing things such as putting a single official in charge when there are the complex crisis situations like this or standing up a red team to challenge assumptions that are being made. These are things that the Biden administration did not do during the Afghanistan withdrawal and recommendations for how it could have gone better. Now, in contrast, that White House document that was put out yesterday uh, does cite some lessons learned, such as prioritizing earlier evacuations. But what it really does is dwells on the decisions that were made during the Trump administration and says that those decisions that were made, such as striking a deal with the Taliban to get out uh, the U.S. completely from the country, drawing down U.S. troops in the country, severely constrained what President Biden was able to do. And so there's a disconnect between these two reports. The NSC is saying uh, that they are simply separate reports, that the one from the White House, was drawing on certain parts of the State Department report, but it wasn't mirroring it.
0: What are you hearing from members of Congress and diplomats about the White House report?
8: Yeah, so members of Congress, particularly Republicans, are being very critical of what the White House put out yesterday. Congressman McCall, who is leading the investigation into the Biden administration withdrawal from Afghanistan, saying, quote, that it was brazen whitewashing of their failure in Afghanistan, calling it disgraceful, unjust, and flat-out insulting and then we talked to diplomats in this building who frankly are more interested in seeing what the state department's reports findings actually are because those haven't been made public yet jake and our understanding is that even though parts of this report were largely classified the findings themselves were not but the state department still has yet to release those widely except for sending it to congress yesterday Hmm. Jake,
0: all right kylie atwood kylie atwood at the state department thanks so much Let's bring in former Republican Congressman Peter Meyer of Michigan. He's a former sergeant in the Army Reserves. He served in Iraq. He also spent some time in Afghanistan as a civilian aid worker. And as we covered in August 2021, he secretly flew to Kabul during the frenzied U.S. evacuation back then uh, with Congressman Seth Moulton. Uh, Congressman, good to see you. So you call the White House report on the withdrawal. You call it shameful. You call it a craven whitewash of events. Tell us why.
17: Oh, it's a political document, Jake, plain and simple. This was the Biden administration's attempt to basically shift blame back onto the Trump administration for what happened under the Biden administration's watch in response to the hearings that are taking place on Capitol Hill with the now Republican majority finally scrutinizing the withdrawal operation. I mean, that was I served in the 117th Congress while this was occurring And the Democratic majority refused to probe deeply, refused to ask the tough questions of the State Department, of the Biden administration in terms of how this withdrawal went so catastrophically wrong. And finally, there are those questions being asked and the White House felt they needed to respond. And they put this report out as a political document and nothing more.
0: Without uh, letting the the Biden administration off the hook in any way, do you agree that the Trump administration... um, you know, in negotiating with the Taliban did uh, constrain the Biden administration to a degree in terms of the the withdrawal being mandated?
17: Well, if you remember under the Doha agreement that the Trump administration signed with the Taliban, it initially had a May 2021 withdrawal date. Uh, The Biden administration coming in, um, and it should be remembered that President Biden as a campaign pledge, uh, similar to President Trump, uh, vowed to get our troops out of Afghanistan. Right. So he may have been constrained by the troop numbers. There were twenty five hundred American service members in country by the time the Biden administration took office. Uh, but he changed the deadline from May 1st to September 11th and then realized the political optics of that were bad. So moved it back to August 31st. Um, but frankly, I, again, I'm not going to say that the Trump administration set the Biden administration up for success. But the Biden administration executed the withdrawal And it happened on their watch. Mm -hmm. And the fact that nobody in this administration takes responsibility for it, there has been no one who has uh, resigned or or suffered any negative consequences from a career standpoint because of this, uh, it's shameful. That hasn't been the case in other NATO countries. uh, And it just shows how desperately this administration wants to leave Afghanistan in the review mirror.
0: National Security uh, Spokesman uh, Admiral Kirby uh, took issue with the... Description of the withdrawal as chaotic, um, but as it was happening he didn't have an issue with it w- with that description. I want you to listen to him in 2021 followed by what he told reporters yesterday
18: the crowd size is smaller uh, now than it was in those first few days um, and, uh, and, and so we're not experiencing to the degree we did you know last Monday um, the physical Uh, crush and and chaos. For all this talk of chaos, I just didn't see it, not from my perch.
0: So, I mean, he did acknowledge seeing the chaos that we all saw, uh, you know, babies being lifted into the uh, airport grounds, the people running, clinging to the plane, et cetera, et cetera. The 13 service members killed by the suicide bomber uh, in in August 2021. And then um, yesterday, he said he he didn't see chaos from his perspective. Um, what, What was your reaction to that?
17: astonishment, uh, just a, a loss of words. I mean, this was a very well-documented, uh, horrific, chaotic moment. Now, when it came to what our men and women on the ground were doing, they were incredibly, incredibly heroic and dedicated to the mission that they were forced into. But, and they tried to make order out of the chaos that was there. But denying that there was chaos, I mean, it's the equivalent of telling us to not believe our lying eyes. I mean, and I'm grateful that journalists, uh, not only because of the footage that was coming out, but also because many journalists had either worked in Afghanistan or had friends and colleagues who were still there, fixers, you know, folks on the ground, local journalists, you know, they know the truth. The American public have seen the truth. But now this is an attempt to to basically revise history and pretend it was anything other than what it was. And I... I I'm just at a loss for words.
0: Yeah. Former Republican Congressman uh, Peter Meyer uh, of Michigan, thank you so much. Always good to see you, sir. Thank you, Jake. French President Emmanuel Macron is just about to depart from China after attempting to fulfill a lofty goal to negotiate an end to the largest ground war in Europe since World War II. Macron says he is counting on China's leader Xi Jinping to reason with Russia's President Vladimir Putin as Xi tells Macron it's, quote, in nobody's interest, unquote, for the war to drag on. Back on the battlefield, CNN's Ben Wiedemann visits Ukrainian troops defending positions in the east, armed with resolve and very, very old weapons.
18: Genia prepares his 50 caliber machine gun. He didn't fire this time, but he needs to be always on alert. Russian forces are nearby. This position on the northern edge of the Kharkiv region hasn't seen much action of late, but the men here have seen (coughs) plenty elsewhere. In January, Zhenya was in a front-line foxhole in uh, Donbass. From early in the morning, they would shell us with artillery, and right afterwards, their infantry would try to take our positions, he recalls. You could see them. Much of the area south of here saw vicious combat. Last September, Ukrainian forces routed the Russians from much of the Kharkiv region. Before retreating, they toppled this Soviet-era communications tower, scorched earth, their tactic of choice. This position, manned by the 209th Battalion of the Ukrainian Army's 113th Brigade, is holding steady. Defense, not offense, is the order of the day. Oleksi was a nuclear physicist before picking up a gun.
19: We have uh, enough ammunition, we have enough uh, weapon and uh, different uh, armor uh, equipment, uh, but uh, it's all for defense. Weapons for the counter-attack, it will be better because we sooner uh, free our land.
18: The weapons they have are hardly the latest... The troops showed us a Swedish-made recoilless rocket launcher, dating back to 1978. They defend their position with other decades-old methods. Beyond this razor wire, just on the other side, are landmines. Fortunately, this area is relatively quiet. Which is a welcome respite for these battle-scarred troops.
19: It was a
18: nightmare, is how Yevgan describes the battle in the dead of winter in Donbass. I'll remember it for the rest of my life. 52-year-old Vitali served with Russians in the Soviet army. This war has severed old ties. We ate from the same pot, he says, reminiscing of his days as a young recruit. That was then, this is now. After so many battles, they prepare for the next Ben Wiedemann, CNN, in the northern Kharkiv region.
0: And thanks to Ben Wiedemann in Ukraine. In Russia, authorities have formally charged Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich with espionage, that's according to Russian state media, which added that he continues to deny the accusation. Secretary of State Antony Blinken told reporters on Wednesday that there's no doubt he's being wrongfully detained. Gershkovich is a journalist, not a spy. He was detained by Russian authorities last week ludicrously accused of spying this is the first time it's happened to an american journalist since the end of the cold war the wall street journal released this statement after reports emerged that gershkovich had been formally charged quote these charges are categorically false and unjustified and we continue to demand evans immediate release unquote russian state media says a moscow court will hear an appeal filed by gershkovich's lawyers against his arrest later this month what a travesty coming up the controversy in Nashville not dying down. We're talking to a Republican member of the Tennessee legislature who voted to save two of the Democrats and expel one of them. Stay with us. Moments ago, Vice President Kamala Harris arrived in Nashville where she is meeting with state legislators and gun reform advocates amid the fallout from Tennessee state Republicans decision to expel Two elected Democrats, Justin J. Pearson and Justin Jones from the legislature. Jones and Pearson broke House decorum rules to participate in gun reform protests on the legislative floor in response to the deadly Nashville school shooting. This is only the third time that st- state lawmakers have been expelled from the Tennessee legislature since the Civil War. Uh, with us now, Republican Tennessee state lawmaker Brian Ritchie, uh, Uh, Representative Ritchie, thanks for joining us. So you were one of seven Republicans who voted against expelling Democrat Gloria Johnson and one of just three Republicans who voted against expelling Representative Justin Pearson, but you did vote to expel Representative
20: Justin Jones. Can you explain your votes to us? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I started sharing with uh, leadership and everybody that I did not think that expulsion was the right thing. What these three individuals did was uh, completely horrible. It was a disrespect to our general assembly, those members that have served before me and that will serve in the future. Um, according to article two, section 12 of our constitution, did it constitute them being expelled? Absolutely. In my opinion, was it warranted? And I did not believe so representative Jones's office is right next door to mine. I had multiple conversations with him this week, letting him know that I wasn't in favor and Essentially, he told me that he wanted to be kicked out because his uh, following was growing. He's getting all this national exposure and that the Metro City Council had already uh, said that they were going to reappoint him um, back to the General Assembly. So I was honoring his wishes and voting for him, um, but I didn't think that any of them should end up getting kicked out, um, even though it was warranted um, based on the letter of the law. So Republicans voted to expel two young black
0: men and not the 60 year old white woman, Representative Gloria Johnson, who did the same thing. Uh, Johnson says that that's because she's white. Um, what do you think of that? And, and do, how do you think this looks to the rest of the country?
20: Yeah, that's political nonsense. Um, I, if anything, it was two energetic, youthful males that were a little bit more animated while they were up there. And Miss Gloria Johnson, Representative Johnson, stood there, She, when the, they played the video, it clearly showed her standing there not doing as much. And I think that swayed other members to not vote for her. And that's why she's still there. Had nothing to do with the color of their skin. I respect uh, all three of them and their constituents that voted for them. I felt that they should stay. Um, I honored Representative Jones, but it had nothing to do with race. Anybody that's stating that um, is just trying to talk uh, political nonsense that should not be uh, uh, discussed. So I guess one of the other um, reasons
0: uh, that this has gotten so much attention is just because the punishment seems so much harsher than the than the offense. Um, and as you know, uh, last year, the former State House Speaker, Republican Representative Glenn Casado, he was indicted and arrested on federal bribery charges, um, he's contesting that. But he wasn't expelled for that. In, in 2018, Republican state lawmaker David Byrd, as we covered on our show at the time, he was accused of sexually assaulting three teenage girls years before when they were on his high school basketball team. He was not expelled. Um, if Republicans are so concerned about decorum and conduct, why would Byrd and Casada Bird be allowed to keep their seats as long as they wanted,
20: uh, while these two gentlemen were ejected uh, and expelled. I, I, I was not. I'm a freshman lawmaker. I just got elected. I can't speak on what happened uh, last year or 2018. Um, I know that the conversation that was taking place amongst the uh, Republican Party this week is this is the first time that this has happened in any of our lifetime, as far as for somebody just blatantly uh, coming out and uh disrupting our floor session, and that a precedent had to be set, and that's what the Republican Party was sharing. Um, as they were going around and, and chatting amongst everybody, each other, but not once did it end up coming up as far as uh anything that had happened in the past. It was based on this right here. And this had not happened um, in any of our lifetime. And we needed to set a precedent. I didn't agree with it. That's why I was against the expulsion. Um, But according to Article 2, Section 12, it's there in black and white. So, I mean, I guess
0: uh, the issue, uh, another reason that this is getting such attention, I think, is because of the really offensive thing that happened, which is that Disturbed individual going into the Covenant School in Nashville and slaughtering six innocent people, including three nine-year-olds at the Covenant School in Nashville. Horrible, offensive, um, you know, just just a a horrific mass shooting. And it seems like to, to a lot of people outside the legislature that lawmakers, Republican lawmakers, are more concerned about a disruption on the floor
20: than they are about these six innocent people killed at this Christian school. That That's complete nonsense. Um, it, uh, that's the narrative that the media is wanting to share and that's what these three individuals uh, are wanting to share. There's not one member of that body, Republican or Democrat that was not devastated by this horrific, horrendous um, action that this uh, lady took um, down there in Nashville when she went in there and murdered these uh, six innocent uh, sweet lives. Um, when it comes to the legislative process, these same three individuals that are up there advocating and saying, I'm for gun vi- or we need to end gun violence and we need to protect our kids, were also the same three individuals that voted against sec- school safety pursuit bills yesterday. And just in February, there was a bill that um, Chairman Faison introduced that would allow more security in co ops with private schools. And out of the seven individuals that voted, no, three of them were up for expulsion yesterday. So it's very hypocritical when they want to get up there and say, we need to stop gun violence and we need to protect our kids. Yet they don't vote on legislation that would actually end up doing that. And when it comes to the legislative process, we had bill filing deadline that was back in January mm-hmm. and they didn't submit any bills that would end up moving through the process. And then to state that bills that are being voted on now is just in reaction to that horrible event is nothing close to the truth because those bills were filed back in January. They were planned and prepped back in October, November, and December. So, um, that my heart goes out to the families and the community, and this is something that should never end up happening. But it's something that every member up there in the General Assembly is working towards. And yeah. anybody trying to make a political statement that that's not what's happening is so far from the truth. It's uh, absurd.
0: I'm out of time, but I just want to get a yes or no on 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 this. In, in the wake of the the Parkland school shooting in 2018, uh, a lot of states passed red flag laws. Uh, that's been encouraged in the in the national federal legislation uh, after the Valde shooting. Um, But now your governor, Bill Lee, uh, a Republican, suggests he might be open to a new red flag law. Uh, Yes or no. Is that something you'd be willing to think about? Uh, Can you repeat that last part? Would you be would you be would you be willing to support a would you at least be willing to consider a red flag law for Tennessee to keep guns out of the hands of individuals that have been flagged? uh, if, If Governor if Governor Lee brings it to the legislature
20: i'm not in favor the the term red flag law is so broad and it covers so many things um i think that gun law-abiding citizens should be able to keep guns there should be a process which tennessee already has steps for somebody to be declared mentally uh, not stable to be able to possess those guns that's already on the books but everybody wants to overlook that so um I would have to look at whatever particular legislation okay. is. But when it comes to a broad term red flag law, no, I'm not in support of that because I don't know what that entails. Tennessee
0: state lawmaker uh, Brian Ritchie, thanks for answering our questions today. Appreciate it, sir. Thank you, sir. Have a great one. Still ahead, President Biden still has not officially announced his bid for reelection. The poll numbers that might be playing into the delay. Stay with us. And our politics lead and incumbent President Biden, his time when it comes to starting his reelection campaign, perhaps waiting for his poll numbers to improve. CNN's latest survey shows only 32 percent of Americans say President Joe Biden deserves reelection. 32 percent. That's down five points since December. Let's discuss all this with our political experts. Uh, Abby, let me start with you. How long can Biden wait?
21: As long as he wants. He, yeah. That's the benefit of being the president, is that you don't have to announce anything because uh, by virtue of being the president, you are newsworthy. Most days, I shouldn't say every day. Some days, yeah. some days uh, he's not doing anything. But I think that the 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 Biden uh, campaign. Uh, understands that if they can stay out of the chaos, if all the chaos stories are coming from the Republican side, that is good news for them. And they're going to keep that going as long as possible. I don't think it's going to be forever because they want to be able to raise money for the campaign. But they're they're not rushing into this right now.
0: And Andrew, speaking of money, the economy complicating things for Biden, new CNN polling shows, only 29 percent of Americans say the economy is in good health. um, And that's the best the number's been in a year. Still pretty lousy, though.
7: Right. And I think inside the White House right now, you're seeing a lot of unease right now about this, especially with cost of living, inflation. Uh, what the Fed is doing right now is working ever so slowly to sort of cool the economy and slow inflation a little bit. Um, but I want to go back to one more thing that that Abby said about the president's posture right now. And I think he's trying to tack to the center a little bit. In the meantime, there are three big areas where he's done that. And we see often see incumbent presidents do that when they're setting up a reelection campaign campaign. The first is on immigration. He's embraced some tougher immigration enforcement measures mm-hmm. at the border, uh, angering members of his own party. Uh, he also recently approved an oil drilling project in Alaska, which climate activists were very upset about. And of course, the most high-profile one was when he ended up signing that Republican-led resolution uh, on on the DC uh, criminal code, uh, which not only blindsided Democrats um, but frustrated many of them because you know it really showed a, a, a rift within the party. Uh, but I think it's a conscious effort on the part of President Biden to take these more tactical moves to set up a re-election campaign rather than it focus on the logistical moves of, you know, where are we going to headquarter the campaign? Who am I going to hire? Yeah,
0: and uh, Alencia, uh, also to add to that, um, President Biden uh, just embraced this policy when it came to uh, transgender athletes, um, basically saying that he's against bans on transgender athletes, but... Uh, competitive college and professional and, I'm sorry, competitive high school and college athletics, uh, there can be exclusionary rules for trans athletes. What did you make of that?
11: I'll be just very honest. It was very disappointing. Uh, I know a lot of LGBTQ groups were very frustrated because they feel as though there is a champion with President Biden. But to the point that the panelists are making He has to make sure he is setting up a good bid for re-election that includes moderates, that includes independents. And I'm not saying whether or not um, the policy is correct, but there are different conversations when it comes to some of these issues, whether a lot of these cultural issues, some of these issues that work in certain states that, unfortunately, Democrats have to win. And so it's a very interesting position that he's in right now, but to the point Abby was making... Let's let the Republicans deal with their crazy mess, and Biden be out there talking to people about the policies that he has, him and his administration have already been able to pass through.
0: And Doug, look at this: our poll also shows that the economy, by far, is the top issue for most Americans, way ahead of political divisions or guns and crime, which essentially are tied for second. Other issues such as immigration, climate change, national security, racial injustice, in the single digits. Of course, people can care about more than one issue at a time, so I, I never know really how much stock to put in these polls. Um, but what do you, th- do you think economy is going to be the main thing?
10: Uh, at this point, it, it looks like it. It usually is. And part of that is, you know, as we, as we look at jobs numbers that came in, by and large, a good jobs report for the administration today. It also highlights, when we talk about facts and figures and numbers, politics is about people and the economy is about people. So they go to the store and they're paying more for still everything. Inflation is down, but it's still way too high yeah. on everything from haircuts to eggs. And people see that every day. That's what they
0: respond to. Not a good jobs report that comes out on the first Friday of the month. Um, let's turn to Justice Clarence Thomas putting out a very rare statement about his personal life. This after the ProPublica report uh, suggesting that he and his wife took uh, luxury tips, h- trips, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth uh, by, paid for by a Republican mega donor. Uh, Justice Thomas says he didn't disclose them at the time because he had been advised he did not have to report them. His statement goes on to note that the guidelines for reporting personal hospitality have been recently changed, adding, quote, and it is, of course, my intent to follow this guidance in the future. Yeah. What do you think?
21: I mean, I think that this is a clear case of uh, Justice Thomas not following the spirit and possibly even the letter of the law here. Um, one thing that really caught my eye was there was a time when he reported some of these gifts.
0: 2004. And then
21: he stopped doing it. Yeah. Why would you stop reporting gifts if you didn't have to in the first place? So it seems to me that at a certain point he decided to treat these uh, gifts differently. And it raises real, real real, problems. And perhaps this is an opportunity for them to clarify where things are as, a, as it relates to ethics for the court... But the idea that just because Harlan Crow, the the wealthy Republican donor, doesn't have a specific case before the court, can't possibly be trying to influence the court with all of these lavish trips is absurd on its face. And I think the spirit of the law really speaks to that. But Justice Thomas seems to be uh, now saying, well, now that it's really laid out, I will I will disclose them. But I think it was clear many, many years ago.
0: The L.A. Times uh, is is writing uh, that in 2004, he had disclosed a few expensive gifts he got from from this uh, billionaire. Uh, and then they criticized him uh, in, a, in a report and then he stopped. Uh, so I think there is a question about how much of this is he just didn't like the scrutiny versus how much of this is he was abiding by the letter of the law.
7: Right. And Congress actually has a very specific role that they can play in here. I know that the Judiciary Committee chairman in the Senate, Dick Durbin, has already come out with a statement saying we will act on this. But separately, through the appropriations process coming up here, especially in the Senate, um, they have the authority to basically condition funding for the court on the adoption of a stricter ethical code. Um, and Senator Chris Van Hollen, who chairs the Appropriations Subcommittee that handles the Supreme Court, has, has signaled an openness to exploring a process like that. And just within the last hour or so, a group of Democrats uh, wrote a le- letter to the Chief Justice asking for an investigation into this. So I think this is one of those instances in which Congress isn't just going to you know, yell about something. They could actually get something done.
11: Well, and to that point, actually, there are senators like Senator Tina Smith who are in support of actual court reform and Supreme Court expansion and actually have been talking to people about this. And you have groups like Demand Justice who are speaking to voters about what they are thinking about the Supreme Court. And this goes back all the way to, like, the Kavanaugh days. And so I feel like the conservative justices are having hit after hit for the American people to not trust the system.
0: So Abe Fortas, as you know, when he had to resign from the Supreme Court in in, in (laughs) 1969, the story you know, not Abe Fortas, Uh, in 1969 he had to resign after a scandal involving gifts that he was getting. Mm -hmm. And the chief justice at the time, Earl Warren, he said, we need to do a code of conduct. Mm -hmm. But all the other justices said no. Uh, They, you know, uh, uh, adjourned for the rest of the year. They still don't have a code of conduct. That was 54 years ago. Yeah. Look, we had this big leak
10: about uh, the Dobbs decision and we're going to find out who the leaker was. We still haven't. Getting behind what happens behind those closed doors in the Supreme Court is very tough to find out. We don't know specifically, you know, what has gone wrong, if, if something has with Thomas, what other justices are doing. But Thomas has obviously had, there's some real questions that have come up, and he needs to actually answer them, which his statement doesn't. And it's not just the left. Quinn Hillier in the Washington Examiner, not a lefty publication or writer, uh, has asked these questions as well in a column just today. We're going to hear more about this, obviously.
0: We don't know who leaked it because it was up to the marshal of the Supreme Court who's <laughs> afraid of the justices. <laughs> they didn't
21: talk to the justices. They didn't read the justices, I mean, of course a, not. This is a seminal moment for the court. I, I think that if they don't understand the way in which public trust is eroding in the court, I think they, they're missing the point. And uh, it matters for them, for the legitimacy of that institution, but also for the overall democracy that we're in. This can't continue, but it might because no one is policing the court.
0: (laughs) Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks so much for being here. And be sure to tune in to CNN when Abby Phillip hosts Inside Politics Sunday. That's Sunday morning. That's at a new time, 11 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Eastern. A former NCAA swimmer advocates banning trans women from women's sports during a speech at a California university. And then she says she was physically attacked. Stay with us. Our sports lead now, Riley Gaines, a former NCAA swimmer, says she was assaulted at San Francisco State University last night. Gaines was escorted from the campus after giving a speech on her view that trans women need to be kept out of women's sports, competitive athletics. The event was held by students with Turning Point USA. That's a nonprofit organization that advocates conservative politics on school campuses. CNN's Natasha Chen has more on the story. Natasha, tell us more about what we know happened.
22: Yeah, Riley Gaines told me that she was asked to speak at this event about her experience competing, in her words, against a male and why she thinks that's harmful to Title IX and women's sports in particular. Now, this happened Thursday evening, and she said that uh, there were people who uh, ambushed her and struck her twice. She said that she was struck twice and it hit her shoulder, that one of the— punches grazed her face, and that campus police had to bring her to a separate room. Now, in speaking with the Turning Point USA spokesperson, uh, he wasn't physically there, but spoke to three members who were in the room. He said that uh, this was actually a very civil discussion. The event itself went on peacefully, even though the room was full of people who both agreed with and disagreed with Gaines, that there was constructive debate, and that this disruption happened as the event was wrapping up. Uh, He said he was texting with Gaines as she was locked in a computer room with campus police as protesters were at the door and that he said it took a, a couple of hours eventually for San Francisco police to come and disperse the crowd and escort Gaines out of there. Now of course she's been very outspoken on this issue since she tied for fifth place in the 2022 NCAA swimming and diving championships with um, a transgender swimmer Leah Thomas in the 200-yard freestyle competition, clearly a very heated topic about uh, trans women's participation in women's sports, and there seem to be multiple groups present at this event, some of them there uh, uh, to listen and to have this conversation, some of them there definitely to protest, Jake.
0: All right, Natasha Chen, uh, thank you so much, appreciate it. Vice President Kamala Harris expected to renew a call to ban assault-style weapons, semi-automatic weapons, in a last-minute trip to Tennessee after the Nashville school shooting and the expulsion of two Democratic state lawmakers. CNN's Alex Marquardt will be covering that. He's in for Wolf Blitzer next in the Situation Room, Alex.
17: Yeah, Jake, a lot going on on both the international and domestic fronts. We are watching that visit by Vice President Kamala Harris to Nashville very closely. She is due to sit down any moment now with Democratic state lawmakers at Fisk University, including the three who faced expulsion yesterday. Of course, two of them were expelled, Justin Pearson, Justin Jones. And then we're also going to be interviewing Representative Jason Crow, who sits on the House Intelligence and House Foreign Affairs Committees about uh, the many Uh, international headlines of the day. Uh, As you know, Jake, uh, the administration just yesterday released a review on the Afghan withdrawal and, and Representative Crow served in Afghanistan. So we have all that coming up in just a few moments. Jake. All right, Alex Marquardt, we'll see
0: you next in the Situation Room, which is right next door. Coming up, the growing dangers of childbirth in the United States. Depending on where expectant mothers actually live, we're going to meet one woman who's worried she might have to give birth and she'll end up doing so on the side of the highway. Stay with us. Our health lead now, a new reality for expecting mothers giving birth could be even more dangerous depending on where you live. A new study says that the highest rates of life-threatening complications during pregnancy or childbirth are in Washington, D.C., California, Nevada, New Jersey, and New York. On top of that, Some hospitals are shutting down their maternity wards entirely. As CNN's Elizabeth Cohen reports for us now, abortion laws appear to be playing a major role.
19: Bonner County, Idaho. Picture perfect. Idyllic. A great place to ski or swim or fish, but not a great place to have a baby. I just found out a couple weeks ago via Facebook that my local hospital is shutting down their ob units leandra wright has six children and now she's five months pregnant with her seventh ten minutes away is bonner general hospital where they've been delivering babies for more than 70 years but next month they'll stop that means when leandra's new baby is born this summer she'll have to do this 40 mile drive all the way to d'Alene. on a good day it will take 45 minutes it's frustrating and worrisome. Leandra has a history of fast labors. Her son Noah was born on the way to the hospital. My fifth child was born on the side of the highway. (laughs) New moms in Bonner County aren't alone. Since 2011, 217 hospitals in the U.S. have closed their labor and delivery departments. In the past year alone, hospitals across the country have stopped delivering babies. Money is one reason. The American Hospital Association points out that almost half of U.S. births are paid for by Medicaid, which has low reimbursement rates. Employer-sponsored insurance pays about $15,000 for a delivery, and Medicaid pays about $6,500. Bonner General says one reason for shuttering their obstetrics unit is because they won't have enough providers certified in neonatal resuscitations. And abortion laws appear to be playing a role, too. A hospital press release says due to Idaho's legal and political climate, highly respected, talented physicians are leaving. The Idaho legislature continues to introduce and pass bills that criminalize physicians for medical care nationally recognized as the standard of care. While Bonner didn't specifically name abortion, the state does have one of the strictest anti-abortion laws in the country, banning the procedure almost completely with only a few exceptions. Next month, Leander's obstetrician will stop seeing her. Even us existing patients will have to find other services. It, it just really is surreal that, that it's something I have to worry about. She needs to find another obstetrician and then figure out what she can do to avoid giving birth on the long road to the hospital. Elizabeth Cohen, CNN reporting.
0: And our thanks to Elizabeth Cohen for that report. Coming up this Sunday on State of the Union, my colleague, Dana Bash, will talk to Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York, as well as Republican Congressman from Texas, Anthony Gonzalez. That's at 9 a.m. and again at noon Eastern on Sunday. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead once you get your podcasts. All two hours sitting there Waiting for you to dive in like a giant stack of delicious peeps. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Alex Marquardt in for Wolf Blitzer right next door in the
7: Situation Room. See you Monday. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like.